Welcome to Manners and Madness, a Jane Austen and David Lynch podcast. My name is Maya Adkins. And I'm Christian Cabrera. And today we are diving into Catching the Big Fish, Meditation, Consciousness, and Creativity by David Lynch. Yes, David Lynch's book. <laughs> yes, and I heard his, even though I didn't listen to the audiobook, I heard his voice while reading it because it's very much in his, like, timbre. Yeah. <laughs> his, his cadence. Yeah. I did listen to the audiobook, so it was definitely in his voice, but I was listening to it on like um, a one and a half speed, and I was like, it's so mm-hmm. weird to hear David Lynch speed sped up. <laughs> 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 and then I was looking through the book to write the notes on it, and I was like, oh, the book even seems more like David Lynch than just him reading it, because you can see how short some of the chapters are. Like, mm-hmm. you don't really notice when you're listening to the book, but um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think there was one, I mean, I guess you would call it a chapter uh, that was one sentence long. <laughs> yes, and- I'm pretty sure I wrote it down. <laughs> because after I listened to it, I was like, I don't know how to talk about this book. I, yeah, It's not like, a, it doesn't have a plot, you know? Right. So then I was like, well, now I feel like I got to write down a million notes. So I started to write down notes and I had, I was like, I wrote down so many for just the first few chapters. And I was like, no, you got to. You gotta cut it Not write down so many notes, actually. <laughs> yeah, I would say, yeah, I, I love the structure of this book. It's like there is like a, a central kind of theme. It's all about the process of his meditation and how it kind of how it works into all these asset, uh, facets of his life. But I love the kind of it almost feels like you're reading a book of essays, like really short essays. And I really love the concept of like, there's no like linear story. It's just like, these are thoughts that I had that I'm putting together. Yeah. Which is very much like a David Lynch movie mm-hmm. in certain ways. And very much like what he's talking about, like delving into the subconscious or he doesn't actually mm-hmm. call it the subconscious. What does he call it? The, the self. Uh, the uh, deep. He, he calls it the unified field. Oh, right. Or the That's deepest what... level. Yes. Anyway, I was in my mind referring to it as a subconscious, but you know, <laughs> like it, it feels very like stream of consciousness, like not yes, because I was <laughs> okay. Well, this whole thing will be a stream of consciousness recording, probably. <laughs> but I was I was reading um, some good read reviews of it, and mm-hmm. some of them were like I, some of the one star ones. All the oh, one star ones on. were so long, <laughs> like. People just had to talk about how of course. the main complaint was like, there's, I thought this was going to be a book about meditation and it wasn't really a book about meditation or he's just trying to hawk his meditation stuff on us. I'm like, okay, I I didn't get that at all from this book, but you know, whatever. (laughs) Well, also like you bought the book, so it's, it's not like he was forcing you to read the book. So I wouldn't say he was <laughs> hawking his stuff on it. You bought the book and it says meditation on the cover. So. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. And honestly, I didn't really, it was, he kind of started off about meditation and then he would kind of go to other subjects and then yeah. kind of talk about meditation a little bit more, but I didn't even really feel like it was a book about meditation. I just kind of felt like it was no. about his creative process <laughs> and his thoughts yeah. on creativity in general and film and art and you know his life 
Yeah, I feel like uh, it started off with kind of like some stuff about meditation and like the transcendental med- meditation and kind of what it is and just so that you know that what he's referencing when he's references it. But basically, I feel like it's overall about like creative processes and how to kind of get the best process for yourself because mm-hmm. he's never pushing the idea that like this is how I did it and this is how you should do it. He's always like, this is the process that I use. This is the like the medium or like the tool that I use. And basically, you just kind of let it just opens you up for your own creativity to come to you. Yeah, I feel like he likes meditation because like the whole metaphor of the book catching the big fish is like mm-hmm. it expands your creativity like yes (laughs) and i kind of feel my creativity personally is a lot is very similar to david lynch's in a way and that i like to (laughs) i love the happy accident i kind of like things to be like especially with photography and stuff that's why i like using film because i like i kind of like not knowing what the end result will be and just kind of Mm -hmm. um you know seeing what happens in the moment and yeah you know working with that so i really appreciate him putting it down because it seems it's like such a hard concept even to verbalize you know or Uh to kind of explain explain yeah without knowing it yeah i totally get that i totally i definitely at some points of this process it I was like, oh, I feel like this is how Maya's process is because I feel like <laughs> I've been present for your process in some mediums and it definitely was like, I see the parallels. Like, no wonder you and David Lynch kind of fit together so well. <laughs> you have very similar thought processes. And I love, because he does, it's like, there are definitely like, he'll talk about how he loves the organicness of like just seeing what happens. But then like later in in the book, he talks about digital video and how much control it provides and how he's like, I will never go back to film. (laughs) Film can go away. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I totally understand that too, especially in video. Like I can't even imagine Mm -hmm. having to work with film and video. I think it's a little different when you're just doing photographs, just, Uh but even in photographs, I mean, digital is way easier to work with, than, especially if you want yeah. like the kind of beautiful picture and it's way cheaper. So, I mean, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I really liked a lot of what he was talking about when it comes to film and cinema. And it was mm-hmm. very much like the same kind of stuff I've thought, you know, like the times have changed. <laughs> we can't, yeah. you know, beg people to go back to the theaters or whatever. We just kind of got to accept that Maybe that's not the way people want to watch their films anymore, you know? Right. It was really funny because I I think, I can't remember, what's the year? Was this 2009 when it came out? I think, Um, or six, or... It was definitely, like, not a recent thing because... Six was the first edition. Okay. Yeah, because I was like, he kept referencing the iPod video, and I was like, I remember (laughs) that. (laughs) That was (laughs) definitely not recent. But, I mean, that's essentially that was the precursor to the iPhone. Right. But it's interesting to see, like, how people... Because I remember people talking about how, like, this is going to change everything because this is how people are going to want to watch things. And I I feel like I hate watching things on my phone. I like to watch some odd (laughs) television or something. So it's really interesting to 
go back and be like, oh, it's, yeah, people did think that this is going to be like the new form, <laughs> much like, you know, how streaming was kind of being the new form, but now it seems like streaming is slowly becoming cable. And so, yeah, it's kind of this weird loop. <laughs> I mean, I'm not averse to watching things on my phone occasionally, but they usually just end up being things I'm just listening to. But mm. I love like a big TV and watching stuff at home oh, yeah. in my own tv experience because then you can pause it you can mm-hmm. i don't know it's just more comfortable i don't really like being in huge crowds and being someone who used to work at the movie theaters i feel like <laughs> we're getting sold a whole lot of bull from filmmakers that's actually coming from movie theaters <laughs> that are like right. we want you to come watch movies here and it's like well i mean sure there's something to be said for a group experience but that's not really what I don't feel like cinema or film has ever really been about. It's more about your personal oh. experience. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> he, I love the way he's getting us way into our own topics. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> uh, maybe we should start at the beginning, though. I, did we have any notes? I didn't. I tried to look up some notes, and I really didn't see that there was that yeah. much out there. Which is why I, I ended up reading either. reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see any much notes either. I mean, you know, came out in 2006. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's in my copy, which is the 10th anniversary edition. Mm-hmm. There is an interview at the back with Paul McCartney and Ringo oh. Starr about their experiences with the um, whoever the guru is and uh, how they got uh... into transcendental meditation. Yes. Is it the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi? Yeah, probably. Yes. That's who he (laughs) dedicates the book to. (laughs) Have you ever done any meditation? No. I've always, like, you know, have... I've always had the thought that it's not for me because I have a lot of trouble sitting still, which, you know, could totally be linked to the possible ADHD that I have. <laughs> um, but reading about the transcendental meditation, I was like, this sounds so much more appealing. And I don't know if it's this specific kind or if it's because I'm older than the last time I thought about meditation. But it sounds so intriguing and sounds so like, just, I don't know, like, mind clearing, which I and really into these days. Yeah. I've done a few recently at um, a yoga place. I've gone to a few sound baths or uh-huh. sa- I mean, I don't know if you call them sound baths, but they, there's some chanting and a lot of really cool instruments that you kind of like let wash over you. And I do think that the idea of a mantra and like using that mm-hmm. to get you into meditation sounds very appealing. However, whenever I've looked into transcendental meditation, it's pretty expensive. And I'm like, why oh. does it cost so much for me to get a mantra? But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know that there are um, obviously the David Lynch Foundation is part of it, but there are a lot of ways you can do it without having to spend that much money. But right, you know, I just have never really kind of taken the plunge. <laughs> I've tried regular meditation as well, but that has never really worked for me because I always fall asleep. 
<laughs> well, I noticed that he was uh, when he was talking about transcendental meditation. He's like, sleep is very important, and if you don't get asleep enough sleep, like, you actually might start falling asleep in the beginning of it. Yeah. So, and it feels like it feels almost like what's the like almost parallel to some practices or kind of uh, ideals that are like present in mental health care. Like a lot of like, you know, centering yourself and finding kind of going back to something that really kind of brings you out of the funk of whatever is bringing you down or kind of distracting you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I think is also was really appealing about me, just appealing about transcendental meditation is kind of like I'm already kind of doing that by going to therapy and doing all of my psychiatry stuff. So it feels very comfortable like oh i can just fit right into this because it's kind of using the same practices well if we ever see like a discount transcendental meditation course we'll have to take it <laughs> is there a group on david lynch if you're listening and you want to invite us to your <laughs> transcendental meditation foundation we will happily come and yes. learn some mantras <laughs> i would love to give it a shot yeah i've i've heard a lot of people talk about it, it definitely seems because I listen to a lot of podcasts out of LA. So it seems like mm-hmm. there's definitely a big contingent in the Hollywood area, but they oh, also yeah. can probably afford it more. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> afford it. And there's like that presence of like, I call it uh, like white spiritualism, where they're like very into like yoga and all that stuff, but not very much. It's like a, a whitewashing of it. So <laughs> I'm sure there are different versions of this that are probably not what this actually is but i've heard <laughs> there was uh, some story I, I think i heard on a podcast about michael sarah does transcendental meditation and he was at some retreat and him and his friends were like leaving a session and david lynch was coming into the next session <laughs> and apparently like david lynch wanted to talk to him and so he was like oh my uh, god i'm so nervous and blah blah, blah. so it was really was interesting in season three you know michael Sarah. oh was he maybe it was right before that so maybe that's why <laughs> i mean it feels like uh a lot of david lynch's works are very much like he like they have like a lot of stuff happens kind of in the moment the ideas come to him or it's kind of like a quick moment where it happens and you're like oh i need to like write this down or get this idea down so that you know it doesn't go away because right. this is what i want like a fish it will swim away really exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) get the net (laughs) so okay well uh, well let's start there because the very first sentence i wrote it down because i was like this is like a jane austen we have to write down the first sentence it's iconic (laughs) (laughs) but it's um ideas are like fish if you want to catch little fish you can stay in the shallow water but if you want to catch the big fish you've got to go deeper <laughs> <laughs> i also wonder if we were taught to talk to him now because i watch a ton of science documentaries or maybe not at the moment but i have you know i go mm-hmm. back and forth and he is talking about what modern physics calls the unified field and it feels very like the secret kind of time period. And I don't know Mm. if modern physics still has what they call a unified field. I'm very curious to know because it's not like he uses that as any sort of a justification, but he's like, even science is catching up. So yeah, but I do like inherently kind of have like a belief in the interconnectedness of all things. So 
Oh, yeah. It makes sense to me, but I don't know if... I'm just curious as to like... Oh, my God. The craziest light coming out right now. If um, <laughs> science would still be talk, If, you know, if he would still talk about it that way or if he's learned anything new in the scientific realm oh. or, you know, if that even yeah. matters to him at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I would be interested to see, like, what is the most updated scientific side of it? Because maybe they've gone even deeper or maybe there's just more knowledge about what that unified field is. Because mm-hmm. um, I took it as like, because I did not take physics in high school or college and will never Neither take physics because, <laughs> no. It I has think it's very interesting, math. but I've never taken a <laughs> physics class in my life. <laughs> it just has too much math and I don't have fun doing math, to put it lightly. So, but I kind of like pictured the unified field as like, and this is probably going to be way off of what it actually is, but I almost pictured it like how in the matrix, the like, kind of the main thing is that the life that you're living is like a projection. It's not like your actual life or something. And the unified field is kind of like where we all are in a way, not like physically, but like where we all kind of come from and what our lives are the projections from the unified field. That's kind of how I understood it. I don't know if that's correct at all because i'm not a physicist and i never will be but um i'm not really sure i again i'm not really sure what science calls the unified field but i do want to <laughs> like that makes me want to get into like a, a conversation about philosophy and all that sort of stuff but i feel like that's probably not where we should go if we're gonna talk about this book <laughs> <laughs> probably not <laughs> But I do, I mean, I think it's a testament that this book, talking about it, inspires you to want to talk about that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. Because I feel like later in the book, he even kind of like, that's kind of like one of his things. Well, we'll get into it, hopefully. Yeah. Anyway, so he basically at the beginning is talking a lot about how transcendental meditation has been really central to his work and his film and his painting, all areas of his life. Mm Mm-hmm. It seems like it's like really just had such a profound impact on him that he just wants to share it with everyone. And that's like why he wrote the book, why he's got the foundation. Okay, so we start off the first chapter is called The First Dive. And it's kind of his origin story for Transcendental Meditation. And it Mm -hmm. started while he was doing Eraserhead. Actually, a lot of the stuff that pertains to his movies that we've covered, I'm like, we talked about that fact. We talked about that fact. <laughs> I was like, did that come from this book? <laughs> it basically, you know, we 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 knew because we had talked about it when we did it that Eraserhead was such a long process for him. And yeah. it was very um, overwhelming. He talks about in the book, like he talked about, like we talked about that he at one point consider just making like a little dummy and finishing the the movie (laughs) with like uh, stop motion. But his sister started to do transcendental meditation and he decided to try it. And once he did, like a lot of his frustration and anger all kind of went away. He was able to like step back from it and kind of still keep going with it at the same time. He says that his wife at the time was like, what's happened to you? Why are you so much more chill now? (laughs) Why aren't you like how you used to be, which was not my favorite. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So and then he kind of talks about his younger self and how he was inspired to 
paint by Mm -hmm. a friend's father, like to be a fine artist painter. And he also read a book by Robert Henry called The Art Spirit when he was younger, which gave him the idea of the art life, which is actually a documentary Mm. that we're going to do at some point. I don't know. It's about him. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know if he had any if he helped make it or if it was just about him. But basically the art life to him was a dedication to painting above all else, which mm-hmm. makes sense. Like, you know, you if you really want to be an artist, <laughs> as I know, you've got to spend a lot of your time, which is my main problem <laughs> with being an artist. <laughs> you've got to devote like your entire day to making art. But he, from this book, also learned that you have to you need four hours of uninterrupted time to get one hour of painting done just because there's so much to the process of like even just setting up or just like looking at the work and objectively Mm -hmm. you know going back and forth so i thought that was really interesting yeah i uh i didn't i never like it makes sense like the amount of time that it like you're not painting and when you're painting like when you talk about it but i never really thought about it until i uh i followed this artist on instagram and he will sometimes post like parts of his process just like sped up video and i that's where i really first noticed like oh he's just kind of sitting staring at the painting from different angles and it's like (laughs) that's a lot of the time is spent like waiting for like the idea to come in yeah Um, i was like oh that makes so much sense i never thought about it that way yeah definitely okay so uh, things we've already learned he started film because he wanted to see his paintings move which is where six Mm -hmm. men getting sick came from we kind of already talked about the cinema versus at home which he says is still good but not quite as good (laughs) (laughs) oh and then we get into one of my favorite parts interpretation I just wrote down like the titles of chapters <laughs> if I talked about those specific chapters. But he says that it's absurd for a filmmaker to try to explain their work in words. Um, you don't mm. need anything outside the work. There have been lots of great books written and the authors are long since dead and you can't dig them up. But you've got that book and a book can make you dream and make you think about things. Which made me think of Jane Austen because <laughs> as mm, I was reading this, I was like... I feel like there's so many parallels like they have like such a small body of work and even Jane Austen like they got rid of her family got rid of a lot of her letters and you know we just don't know what she was thinking about a lot of stuff so you know right anyway I was thinking about her a lot well for some reason while I was reading about David Lynch (laughs) but I was too oh yeah yeah I especially with that chapter because I mean he references dead authors but like I really resonated with that thought of like, you know, you don't, art should never really, like, I think it's better for art not to be fully explained. And the way I always looked at it, because I've had this thought process probably within the last few years, that I would rather it not be explained because art is not like, you're not, it's not like necessarily fact. Like, it's not like a textbook. Textbook, you're learning something, you know, it's like very cut you know very Mm -hmm. dry whatever but art i feel like it's being developed from emotion and it's being put out to evoke emotion and depending on your life experiences it's going to be so different for each person and i like the idea of it not being explained 
And I think I understand that now as I've gotten older and how important I value that it not be explained because I'm like, <laughs> I don't want you to change my opinion or my yeah. interpretation of it. Yeah. Because in a way, like, oh gosh, what was I listening to? I don't even remember, but I was listening to something and they were talking about some famous person who said that we are all just trying to make our mark on the world, even though the more of a mark we make, the less we have any, like the further dead we are, the less we have any, I don't know. I can't remember the actual quote. I'm not, I'm not saying it right, but it's like the whole, or like Jane Austen, you know, like it's Mm -hmm. about how you, the viewer are interacting with that piece and you know like the author telling you exactly what's about can kind of ruin the magic of it in a way yeah and he said that that people have intuition and they talk about the meaning with their friends and whatever conclusion they come to can be valid and that's part of the fun of it also is being able to discuss it you know which is probably why twin peaks fan groups or whatever can still be so active now because yeah nobody's ever bothered to explain it so they could keep discussing it but it's also why yeah. um and probably why they're usually <laughs> so <laughs> such good conversations in those sorts of groups at least the twin peaks ones that i've seen mm-hmm. because you know there is no real answer but then sometimes i've definitely seen people be like well I think my is the correct answer and I'm going to defend it. But, you know, that's also part of the fun, I guess. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I think something that's been that was really central to this book was the he enjoys the kind of discussion, whether it's good or bad, because the fact that discussion is happening means that it resonated with people. It evoked Mm -hmm. some emotion, whether it's positive or negative or neutral. And I think it adds to it. I think I don't necessarily know if he necessarily directly referenced it, but I feel like it's implied where it's like if you have this reaction, whether it's positive or negative, and it's a reaction that kind of um, what's the word not puts down, but like basically doesn't allow other reactions to have any weight, then it doesn't you're not like respecting the art in a way, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's where a lot of those discussions, I hate being a part of those discussions. I don't want (laughs) you to tell me flat out, like, this is what it is, and this is why you're wrong. It's very alienating, and I feel like it's (laughs) kind of destroys the purpose of the art, which is to evoke discussion and to, I don't know. And it was also good for the the artist, specifically me, because I I hate trying to explain things. (laughs) I hate trying to, like sum it up for an art show you know like yeah what does the 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 top i mean it's just like it all feels like such bs to me so (laughs) (laughs) i'd much rather have someone else tell me their interpretation (laughs) yeah one also like with art it very much comes from emotion and you know especially when you're working like i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you (laughs) no go ahead i was just thinking like especially when like David Lynch, you're working on like such a subconscious level. It's like, yeah, kind of impossible to explain it, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like some emotions are so like, they're so complex or they're so personal or, you know, you've gone through, especially like later in life, like 
you've gone through so many things that are so specific to your life. How do you explain to someone who has not had those experiences what that feels like? It's right. all like it's to me, it's almost impossible. And that's why what's so amazing about art and why I love art in all its mediums so much is like you kind of are allowed to put your own experiences onto it and see how it affects you, even if the artist didn't have that specific intention. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I'm going to skip a little bit. Although I will say the, there was something interesting in the Eraserhead chapter. Mm-hmm. He said that he was making Eraserhead, but he didn't really understand what he was making. And this has to do with him saying that it's his most spiritual movie. Mm-hmm. But he, is, he got out his Bible and was reading it. And one day he read a sentence in the Bible and closed <laughs> the Bible because that was that sentence summed up how he saw the movie as a whole. And he said he'll never say what that sentence was. <laughs> but it kind of makes me want to like just do a random opening of the Bible every day and like look at the sentence and be like, could that be the sentence? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a real big book. So it's like, <laughs> I, know, I wouldn't anyone... <laughs> actually read it to try to find the sentence. <laughs> Say anyone trying to find it. It's like, good luck. Cause it also could be t- totally like meaningless to when you read it, it just meant something to him at the time. Um, yeah. I, yeah, that, that meant that made me laugh. He was like, I will never tell anyone (laughs) it has to be a mystery yep yeah you can tell that i spent a lot more time writing down stuff from the beginning because we're still on a racer head but (laughs) no it's important yeah i mean he did talk about how how great jack nance was for waiting for him Mm -hmm. and letting him finish the movie and he said to keep your eye on the donut not on the hole and it felt like (laughs) i've heard that from him so many times but like oh it makes so much more sense now (laughs) (laughs) yes feels like we got a a little bit of like backstory to what it means yeah um okay he talks about the angriest dog in the world which honestly we did (laughs) talk about everything he talked about for that when we did that episode okay and then he goes back to meditation with his, he talks about transcendence, which he mm-hmm. says is different than relaxation or contemplation or concentration. It's like a unique state, which he equates to bliss. And again, he says science backs him up. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it does. I think they've definitely done like MRIs or something for people meditating. Yeah. And, you know, you can see like special the brain things. activity. Yeah. Then we get a little bit about the French and how they let the director have final cut. And he's very lucky to have worked with a lot of French companies (laughs) or um, studios that give that to him. That's kind of crazy to think that it's not the norm. Mm -hmm. Like, I I guess I would understand if it was someone else's creation, but they didn't want to direct it and you bring in someone else. Like, I would understand that. But like someone like David Lynch, who's a kind of like a like a. I guess a creative director, like he creates the piece and then directs it. Like you would think (laughs) most places would be like, it's yours. You can figure (laughs) it out, but that's shocking. I don't think in America we think of movies as art very often. No. And it's a very collaborative process. And I mean, a lot of times I think for a lot of directors, it probably is good that they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily get final cut because I think there's a lot to be said for like the, process of editing and making things more audience friendly which david lynch does not try to do but he's doing like a different kind of movie than your typical movie right 
But ultimately, not having Final Cut is what gives him such bad feelings about Dune. Yeah. I recently heard that Dune, there was a, a like maybe the script for part two or uh-huh. David Lynch had a part two in mind. And I think something oh. was recently came out about that. I can't really Interesting. remember what it was. Oh, well, here, oh sorry. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> and I was going to say like with Dune, I feel like watching it, we could definitely feel that it was a little bit, it was, it felt separated from David Lynch. And I think reading about how he didn't have final cut and how he feels about it, uh, to this day about how it's just like at least at least in the book when he wrote it it definitely felt like he was still feeling like a little bit embarrassed about the quality of it or something and you know I feel like uh the core of it was really good and it had these moments of David Lynch that came through that we really loved but then like the you know the overall it definitely felt like a separation I think we talked about that um, and I kind of wish he had like a second chance because I, I want to see the David Lynch Dune. <laughs> I want, give him every piece of footage that still exists from Dune and let him make whatever movie he wants out of it now. <laughs> yes. I want the David Lynch cut. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's definitely will probably be different now than it would have been then. I would love to see yeah. what he would do with it now. Me too. This I w- did want to add this because I thought you would. I thought this would be um, one that would be funny to talk about. But he said that he went to a therapist once and uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> asked in like the first 30 seconds of meeting with the therapist was like, now, will this process affect my creative process? And the therapist was like, it could, it definitely could. And he was like, okay, well, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did laugh at that. And then I also was like, I think he went to a bad therapist because, <laughs> because like, the way I, I see it, you know, it shouldn't necessarily affect your creative process at all because he also talks later about how having a creative process that is bogged down by, you know, depression, anxiety, or any of a lot of these like more uh, emotions and processes that are very negative towards your mental health, they don't have a positive impact on right. your, you know, your output, your creative output. And so really what the therapist probably should have said is something along the lines of like, it will probably improve your creative process because you won't have these negative, you know, aspects still present. Like, it, yeah. you know, you, the idea that you create good art because you're depressed or because of all these bad things is not true and he says it in the book is you create it in spite of those things and i really yeah. love that was probably one of my favorite takeaways and it's just like imagine all the great art that we never got because these things existed for people yeah exactly i feel like he talked about that at the beginning maybe i skipped it but i i think i definitely wrote it down at some point um like he definitely talks about van gogh and like People will say, because he was so depressed, he made such good things. And he says, well, that's probably was the highlight of his life. So if he wasn't depressed, imagine how much more beautiful things he would make. (laughs) Right. It was like, yeah, he created these things because it was the only thing that brought him joy. (laughs) (laughs) Which is such a, you know, it's so depressing to think about, like, all of these artists who are kind of famous for being depressed artists like him, like Edgar Allan Poe or Sylvia Mm -hmm. Plath. All of these people, it's like, the it's i'm glad that we're moving away as a culture from the idea that from idolizing depression art in a way where it's like 
understanding it more. I feel like, at least for me, whenever I've had like, you know, depressed times in my life, Mm -hmm. I feel like I am much more prolific in certain ways because I just need to express myself more. But I don't think that it's the art is good (laughs) 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 or better, you know? (laughs) It's just just more need to express it at that time because like I got so much emotions to get out. Right. I I totally agree. And I sort of look back before I started my mental health journey with my medication and my when my depression anxiety were kind of like all consuming, I wasn't able to do anything creative. I had a no desire to do anything creative, but also like there was just no room for it because the other, you know, yeah. mental health issues took up so much space in my life and every day was spent like trying to stay alive basically and it's like imagine all that effort put into actual art because you don't have to try to stay alive you can just be yeah yeah he has a whole chapter about angelo badalamenti and how he loves their Mm -hmm. creative process together which (laughs) you can just go on youtube and watch their creative process i was like we all know you love it (laughs) he's like if we lived in the same city i would go over there every day (laughs) (laughs) i love that i love that chapter yeah he talks about the importance of sound, which obviously we know because Duh. sound is such a huge part of his movies and he's so good at it. And how he casts his movies just by talking to the actors and like envisioning them in the role, which I mm-hmm. think is a perfectly fine way. It's always seems to have worked fine for him. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, as someone who's not an actor, I like that process. The sound of the idea of that process makes more sense. Because he was saying how he's like, if I gave them cold reads, I'd want to direct the cold reads. And it's like, we're we're not getting actual time in for the audition. It makes right. sense. He talks about rehearsing and how it's more about the talking after the scene. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how people who run their sets with fear are only getting 1% and not 100% out of their actors, which is very nice to hear. Of course, yeah. we all know David Lynch is a good person. well i think that also like applies to work that isn't acting you know i think about like you know all these like kind of labor movements that are happening across the country and even you know myself i kind of within the last year or so kind of came into a management position and kind of was thinking what kind of manager do i want to be and Mm -hmm. i really resonate with that thinking of like you know, being kind of strict or laying down the law, that kind of, you know, thought process doesn't work. It's never worked on me and I don't believe it'll work on other people. So I like his thought process on that. It makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, in general, happy workers are loyal workers (laughs) and good workers. (laughs) Right. He gets into Twin Peaks a little. His very first um, Twin Peaks antidote is about Frank Silva and how he became Bob. You know, yes. like in the happy accidents since. Also, we've heard this before too, how the Red Room sequence came from leaning on a hot car. <laughs> <laughs> the pssss. <Yeah. laughs> he used that a couple times. I do like, even though, you know, he wants Final Cut, he still appreciates a test audience. So that, you mm-hmm. know, kind of does, I guess, the same thing as maybe a uh, studio would do. But it's so you don't lose your objectivity, you know. Yeah. You don't get bogged down. And he also was kind of chastising critics who like to generalize all like 
he'll like I imagine he's maybe talking about like a blue velvet where mm-hmm. yeah, he's got Dorothy, Vale, and Frank, and that they will say, Oh, she represents all women or he represents all men, and he's like, No, I'm not it's one person. This is a one right. character <laughs> that I created. <laughs> Who's lived their own life. This is their own journey. Yeah. And people are always like, you know, how can you, you must have really dark insides if you're making these movies. And he's like, his films don't reflect his state of mind, but the world that we live in. <laughs> I wonder yeah. if him and Stephen King could have a nice conversation about that someday. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really interesting. Almost like a, I don't know, I've, I guess authors on authors because they're both authors technically. Yeah. <laughs> I was like directors on <laughs> Yeah, I really love that chapter where he's talking about like, you know, my the art is not necessarily dark because i am internally dark it's reflective of the world we live in and i feel like that's very much applies to all assets of our lives like it's going to reflect what kind of world we live in so if it's if we're at a dark moment it's going to be dark yeah and it's dark right now (laughs) yes it is (laughs) Okay, oh, and then he starts talking about Industrial Symphony Number no. 1, which I would love to cover someday. I don't know. I I always thought it was a like a music thing, but it's a play mm. that he directed. Interesting. It's the only play he ever directed, he said. And so I don't know if a copy of it still exists and maybe hmm. we could cover it, but maybe on YouTube. He was like, "We never had a rehearsal, but it all worked out." It was very much like <laughs> so a stressful you do this. He sounded like he was like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. But like, then he ended up being like, I want you to do this thing at this time and this thing at this time. And everybody did it. It was like a one time performance thing and it all worked out. <laughs> Ugh, so stressful. I would have liked to have seen that for sure. <laughs> Definitely. We haven't gotten to the Lost Highway yet, but apparently it was sort of based on the OJ Simpson trial, which was <laughs> yes. very prevalent at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's the last thing I expected to read in this book. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I, I'm ex- I'm excited to, to get to that. We'll be, I'll just save my thoughts on that till we get to it. But um, yeah, okay. he does say that some restrictions can help the uh, creative process. He talks about Mulholland Drive, which we haven't gotten to yet. Which also I think maybe we'll just save that as well because I'm sure that'll be part of our notes on that. Okay, there's a chapter called The Box and the Key. He wrote, (laughs) I don't have a clue what those are. That's the whole chapter. (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea that, you know, he loves interpretation and how it can be interpreted very literally. He's just like, I don't know what that concept is or... (laughs) Like you can go dive a little bit into it deeper and it's like, is he saying that he doesn't believe in like a key fits in like one key fits into one box? Like what is the thought process here? I have no idea. <laughs> no um, context whatsoever. But I did no. in college I did a, a short series called The Key with a bunch mm-hmm. of different random parts that didn't really seem to go together. And the first image was a box. <laughs> so maybe i have a clue maybe (laughs) you're on the track he loves the beauty of aging buildings Mm -hmm. he loves the texture of rotting bodies i had to disagree there but (laughs) (laughs) that's one i don't love yeah he loves wood and working with it (laughs) (laughs) i kept thinking about that um in fire walk with me that scene where pete is like 
a two by four is not really a two by four, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, Pete. Yeah. Or I was thinking a lot about during COVID when he was doing all the like, what is David oh, up yeah. to? You know, and he's always making something in his shop. Sitting in front of the fire is mesmerizing. He feels the same way about electricity and smoke and flickering lights. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> He loved the script of Straight Story because of the emotion. He talks about his some of his favorite movies. He loves the Billy Wilder movies, Sunset Boulevard and The Apartment, which mm. are two we should cover sometime on the podcast. We should. I've never seen them. I have seen Sunset Boulevard. I haven't seen The Apartment, but I've heard people rave about how what a great movie it is. He also loves Fellini, uh, both La Strada and Eight and a Half, which mm. I've never seen any Fellini, I don't think. Me neither. He loves Hitchcock, Rear Window, which we did see, one of his favorites. I love Rear Window. (laughs) Oh, he said he actually got to meet Fellini right before he died, which was a funny little antidote. I mean, not funny per se, but interesting. He loves Stanley Kubrick because, (laughs) well, I don't know if it's because, but Kubrick once said that Eraserhead was his favorite (laughs) movie. So I think that meant a lot to him. And yes. He said Lolita was one of his favorite Kubrick movies, but we are never watching that for this podcast because I hate that book and I refuse to watch the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the only... I'm trying to think of what Stanley Kubrick I've seen. I've definitely seen The Shining. Yes. Which is one of my favorite movies. I love that movie, but... Oh, that's definitely on our list of, I think, of... I love it. (laughs) Movies to watch, but we're in a scary mood. (laughs) (laughs) I know he's a very controversial person because of how awful on set he was but um he liked to I can, do his with fear <laughs> exactly yeah so but i i would say from an artistic perspective the outcome is very from what i've seen very good didn't he do the thing the original one i, I didn't say, see the original one but no or no i he think did, that was john carpenter space odyssey was that stanley kubrick clockwork so. orange um that one with right. nicole kidman and tom what's his name Tom Cruise. <laughs> I was like, there's a lot of Toms. Every Tom name went through my head. <laughs> okay, we're, we will, let me uh, move it along because, well, we're getting near <laughs> the end. Okay, there's a bunch on Inland Empire, which again, we haven't gotten to. I'm, I'm almost positive will be in our notes for when whenever we do get to it. It was very interesting though. Like he despises the idea of director's commentaries, which actually makes me so <laughs> sad because I love director's commentaries. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, it's a it's a hit. I tomorrow. can understand why, <laughs> since he doesn't want to explain what's going on, but like still just talk about whatever. <laughs> just listen to the talk. <laughs> oh, and he t- tells young oh we already talked about that. Digital video is the way of the future. Yes, DV. He says that most of filmmaking is common sense. Well, he's actually talking about digital filmmaking as like a way to encourage young people to just go out and make their movies. Like it's so much easier and more accessible to you. Just make it. Don't worry about a studio or whatever. Just make it. So his advice is to stay true to yourself. Let your voice out and don't let anybody fiddle with it. Never turn down a good idea, but never take a bad idea and meditate. <laughs> and also, you should get plenty of sleep <laughs> if you love what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're creative. Yeah. And to keep at it because it's a tricky business. You may need a job, but keep doing your art. <laughs> I really liked that sentiment because I feel like at least, you know, some of the artists that we know, I think there is a pressure to 
do their art no matter what and they won't get what i consider like kind of um i would just say non-creative jobs they to sustain themselves they kind of rely on their art to sustain them and if you're not at a level where it's consistently sustaining you it could be very i feel like it could be very stressful it could affect your art yeah so you want to find that balance and i really like that he said that because i feel like a lot of creatives don't feel like they can yeah but they should <laughs> yeah i mean he got a job delivering the wall street journal <laughs> right. he was making a razor head. oh and then at the end he talks about the reason he started talking publicly about transcendental meditation was because he saw what a difference it could make to children and that's why he started his foundation so that he could introduce it to schools where it has made a big difference and honestly i literally just saw an article about this the other day not about necessarily transcendental meditation but i think it was like a georgia school which was doing really badly Mm -hmm. it had most of the kids in it were houseless and but they started doing meditation in school to give the kids a way to deal with their Mm. feelings and that it's had a huge impact oh wow so i just i think that's really great and he believes that if enough people use transcendental meditation and find peace, that peace can actually be a reality for the world. I hope so. And then finally, in closing, he loves film. He loves ideas. He loves meditating. Maybe enlightenment is far away, but it's said that when you walk toward the light with every step, things get brighter. May everyone be happy. May everyone be free of disease. May auspiciousness be seen everywhere. May suffering belong to no one. Peace. <laughs> uh, I love it. <laughs> I want it. <laughs> I can't believe we got through the whole thing. <laughs> I know. And I can't believe it took us an hour to get through the whole thing at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just so many ideas and things to discuss. I mean, we even skipped some things because we haven't covered the material yet. But yeah, I really enjoyed reading this book. And it was a very easy read which I really enjoyed. I love the short chapters. I think more books should, I wouldn't say should do that, but I I really gravitate towards books that do that because it makes it easier just for someone like me to read it. Yeah. And honestly, listening to the audiobook, if you listen to it on regular speed, at David Lynch speed, which is slow, it's only an hour and 45 <laughs> minutes. So it's yeah, like it's very really not that big of a commitment. Books. So I definitely recommend it. Did you have a favorite part? I was thinking about that when I was reading, and I think I remember the page. I really... Okay, yes. I would say I'm going to give two chapters. Um, Desire and Consciousness, I think, really kind of stuck out to me when I was reading them. And Desire is basically kind of like, you know, once you start hooking fish, quote-unquote, like, even if it's a small fish, it's going to lead to other fish. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the desire to kind of continue in your art, whatever medium it is, or in the creative process, like getting started basically opens the floodgates for it to keep happening. And I feel like that has been something for me in whatever artistic adventures that I like to go on. That's been the hardest part is getting started and kind of continuing. And I really yeah. liked him touching down on that idea. Um, and then for consciousness, kind of like, I think it really is speaking more towards the transcendental meditation idea, but basically like kind of increasing your 
capacity for your art. So your capacity to kind of be creative and to allow yourself to be creative. And he says, like, if you have a golf ball size consciousness, when you read a book, you'll have a golf ball size understanding. So it's kind of like opening your mind up to all possibilities and not narrowing down when you're kind of going through the beginning process of that creative process. Yeah. That's a great. I really like that. Those are great ones. What about you? I don't know that I have a specific favorite part. I will say that I guess my favorite thing about the book was I found it very inspiring. Like I, it made me want to go create more. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that was kind of one of his goals in writing the book. And it really did work to speak to me. I did, of course, like all the little antidotes. I've heard them all before. So I assume (laughs) people got them from this book. But yeah, it just made me want to go out and make more art, which I think me too. would make him happy. And it also made me more interested in learning about transcendental meditation in general. One of my goals for this year is just to do the artist's way, which right. I feel is kind of in the same vein because it's supposed to be mm-hmm. kind of like a spiritual approach to art in a certain way. So yeah, yeah I think next time I get a... a email from the transcendental meditation people maybe i'll take an extra look at it, <laughs> See what it says. <laughs> exactly yeah maybe there's some you know a free trial or something for you to get <laughs> a, <laughs> a little discounted trial rate. <laughs> exactly yeah i'm very interested in it and i might look into it more just to see what you can do with it well if you find a good one i'll go with you <laughs> <laughs> perfect But that's it for this week. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we have to do a new outro. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will be back next week with a new episode. Yes. Find us on all our social medias. Yes. If you want to email us, mannersandmadness at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at mannersmadness. On Instagram, we're at mannersandmadnesspod. Um, And we have a website, mannersandmadness.com. If you would like to you know, leave us a voice message or click that donate button, we'll appreciate it very much. Yeah. And I think threads is the same as Instagram. Okay. Yeah. Manage the yeah. Madness pod. So yeah. I'm sure if you just look up Manage the Madness, you'll find us. <laughs> and we'd love to hear from you if you've got anything you want to talk about, catching the big fish or anything we've covered in the past or oh, anything yeah. we're going to cover in the future, please. We're going to have probably more check-ins this year because <laughs> of our... Um, capacity to do things so (laughs) our our commitment to our other endeavors which include other art forms so we are just we're respecting catching the big fish's mantra and ideals but that means (laughs) that we'd love to get more feedback from you guys so that we could you know read them on the podcast on the check definitely like that all right well that's it for this week yes thank you for listening and we'll see you next week good night bye